0: Deconstruction, a podcast from Phi Philosophy and the History of Ideas research team at Deakin University,
1: Australia. Welcome to Deconstruction. I'm Associate Professor Patrick Stokes. From issues around Indigenous sovereignty to the Brexit debacle in the United Kingdom, the role of peoples in international affairs has been particularly prominent and contested in recent times. But just what are peoples? Do they even exist, and how seriously should we take them? To find out, I sat down with Dr. John Morse. Okay, we're chatting today with uh, Dr. John Morse, senior lecturer in international law in the Deakin Law School, and a member of the uh, Philosophy and History of Ideas Group, or PHI, here at Deakin, and uh, among other things, the author of uh, "International Law as the Law of Collectives Towards a Law of People." John, we are in a time where peoples are playing a very big and very uh, provocative or even divisive role in international politics.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yep. Is there any such thing? And if so, how do we demarcate what peoples are? (laughs)
0: Uh, It's an extremely good question, Pat. Um, Peoples uh, in that form of words has played a significant role in international relations, international politics Uh, at least since the founding of the United Nations post-World War II, Um, and famously the UN Charter commences by saying, we the peoples of the United Nations. Um, Now, uh, it's a very open question as to uh, how much substance, if any, there is to that phrase in that document, we the peoples of the United Nations, famously the term United Nations was first invented by the soon-to-be victorious Western Allies mm-hmm. towards the end of World War II. It was used among, um, I guess, Roosevelt, Churchill, Stalin. In effect, uh, in fact, the U.S. and the and the U.K. I think were most um, most keen on that phrase. We, the you know, the United Nations, who are appear to be on the point of, of being successful in this war. And that turns into we the peoples of the United Nations uh, implying uh, some global collection of populations represented by those gathered by their leaders in London and or San Francisco. And it turns into this global claim about a representativeness of the world's populations um not as one not as not quite as one single world population but as a collection of um groups or communities or tribes so to speak which in some sense are, are distinct and yet they are getting together mm-hmm. so that notion of um distinctiveness yet collaboration uh Is a significant part of this discourse of people's Mm -hmm. peoplehood. We are a people, we the people. As you say, it's as much divisive as it is, uh, what, cosmopolitan or solidarizing, Mm but if that's a word, (laughs) it is now. It is now. (laughs) Um, Whether there's any real content to that term, a people, the people of XYZ, such and such a place, uh, I find it. I have found it. The more I dig into it, um, I find the, the less substance there is in it. There appears on mm. the surface, uh, at an intuitive level, uh, at an everyday politics level, uh, one can understand that it ha- it does convey meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it conveys meaning, particularly to a local population. It conveys a meaning in the United States context, where it's conventional for uh, the term "the people" to be used in in uh, legal proceedings. The prosecution on behalf of the state, a criminal prosecution, is "the people" against so and so. It's a form of words. Uh, it's got some meaning. It, it, in some sense, it connotes the state. Uh, in some sense, it connotes a so-called quotes. Uh, a nation state, if that term, if that term means anything, which I suspect it doesn't, um, it's a term which um, international law, which is my current my current home discipline, um, <laughs> claims to, in some sense, be the experts in mm-hmm. uh, to expertly, uh, at a global level, manage manage the meaning and the consequences of peoplehood. I think that would, in a sense, be one of the claims that international law makes as a discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, that's. I think it's an open question whether they've um, managed to make sense of it or whether they've just managed to kind of manage it and assimilate it to other agendas.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the US context where, you know, the people is kind of, um clearly kind of what the the phrase in which sovereignty has been sort of shifted into from <clears> a kind of a post-british framework in which the crown or the you know the queen is where sovereignty resides um so that you can bring law cases lawsuits in the name of um the people yep. rather than yep. the, the queen yes um and yet there was this really interesting sort of division that opens up in american right-wing discourse in particular where we the people is is sort of being implied as this separate entity from the state, um, as if we the people has a sovereignty that is somehow um, agonistic with the Washington elite or the Washington consensus or whatever, rather than the state being somehow an expression of that sovereignty. Yes.
0: Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, there's that sense in which we the people um, refers to a a kind of quasi-nationalistic kind of reference um and the directing that against a, a a perceived elite in one's own territory um is part is part of the kind of the package of meanings that goes along with the we the people mm-hmm. terminology. Um yeah, and that I think the roots of that also go back quite a long way because the whole notion that in some sense a population <clears throat> might in some circumstances have the have the right to overthrow a tyrant and obviously that's a question that goes back quite a few hundred years in different forms uh, that is a, an expression of the same question i guess about the rights of um <clears throat> of subjugated populations or populations which think of themselves as being oppressed mm-hmm. including you know w- no some um some people who outsiders like ourselves looking at may think, well, you're not really oppressed. You know, if you want to look at real oppression, go to some other place. Mm. But, you know, there are many communities which uh, seem to feel presumably genuinely, whatever that means, that they are being um, not recognised for their sovereignty in relation to the um, governance of of statehood to which they are subject. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. So, so I <laughs> I'm wondering too then in that sense of, you know, the people or we the people as a sort of repository of, of sovereignty or as a sort of a justification almost for certain kinds of, of action or state action, is that intention with that UN sense of peoples which – the way you've described it sounds like it has to be plural, like it has to be about peoples um, that always exist in relation to other peoples, rather than just like you said, the idea of a world people doesn't seem like it can really cohere. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, look, certainly within the within the United Nations Charter and the, the United Nations framework generally, um, the the implication I think. Um, is that there are territories, there are sovereign territories um, which make up the United Nations. And from an international law point of view, that's fairly straightforward that sovereigns uh, have signed up to the UN Charter as an international treaty, um, and therefore they, a sovereign brings his or her population along with them. And I do think it's very old-fashioned, but I'm finding it helpful in in teaching international law these days to use this language of sovereigns, the sovereign. Uh, International law, as we know it in the 21st century, is still very much a law of sovereigns. Um, And if one visualises a sovereign as as a king or queen or pope or somebody like that, it's actually, although it's simplistic, it actually is, is a very... Uh, accurate way of, of thinking about international laws we currently know it and within the UN uh, system as well so yes the notion is of 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 independent and equal sovereignties around the world with their own territory and the some sense in which there's some legitimacy connection between a people and its territory um, and that that Assumption underlies refugee law around europe post war as well that we you know, if people have had to move out of the place that they ought to be you know then they should be looked after until such times as they can the population can go back to where it really ought to be mm-hmm. um so there there are very big qu um, imme- big and immediate questions about people's livelihoods and and lives which are at stake because of these Assumptions about this is the way the world works. So it's about plurality, um, but the the peoplehood aspect of it, the population reference or the community reference there, uh, gets kind of uh, assimilated to territory, to sovereignty over territories. Sort of a, Mm. a jigsaw, jigsaw picture of the world with with interlocking territories. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, with relatively well-defined boundaries. And um, uh, peoplehood kind of disappears once you've got settled boundaries and settled sovereignties. Mm -hmm. um, Peoplehood disappears until there's some very major disruption. So the UK case, Mm -hmm. maybe the Brexit uh, example and many others, um, until there was a threat around the UK breaking up, in terms of, you know, Scotland may become independent. Northern Ireland might reunify, unify or reunify, whichever is the more correct with Mm -hmm. the, with the Republic of Ireland and so on. Uh, Those questions generate live, uh, substantial political debate about what is the people or what is my people? Is my people Scottish, English, British or whatever? Um, That, Those questions are really not questions at all until there's a problem, until Mm. there's an issue of some uh, constitutional political change. So the question of what is the Australian people uh, is only an issue when there's some threat to that or some enlivenment of that for some reason from Mm. outside or from inside. So self determination kind of disappears once a state is established and recognised by other states. Um, self determination seems so important, and again, it's in the UN Charter: self determination of peoples. Mm-hmm. Every people has a right to self determine its own future and governance, and so on. hugely important apparently in the UN Charter. Um, but once once it's happened, uh, it's kind of evaporates Mm. now all that is solid melts into air or whatever the phrase has been
1: sure although it's interesting in the australian context in particular too where um increasingly there's a focus on not on indigenous people as one sort of amorphous subgroup or demographic within the australian polity Mm -hmm. but rather Mm -hmm. increasing focus on the idea of, of um particular indigenous peoples or Aboriginal nations or yes, First Nations yes um yes and the way you you've just defined um peoplehood there that's going to entail uh, a claim to sovereignty a claim to self-determination and a claim to territory yes
0: absolutely yeah so it's being widely recognized I guess at least in academic circles it's often now said um in what is sometimes a um a somewhat ritualistic a so-called recognition of country that that one often now hears at the beginning of of uh, various events in australia uh, you know you know a, a supposed or or a presumed uh, recognition of the um of the, the role of first nations within australia and the role of settler descendants and their form of institutions in those settings it's often now said uh, there's a reminder of sovereignty not having been ceded mm. by the indigenous populations, and it's that's a really important point uh, in a political sense. But again, it's a reminder that sovereignty is something we we the we the the dominant the dominant population and its institutions in Australia at least that we
1: mm.
0: um, thinks of sovereignty it. In the form of European European ideas of sovereignty. Yep. So it's a double edged sword to say, look, sovereignty was not ceded. Uh, you know, the land was taken taken over by Europeans, which of course historically is completely correct. Um, you know, some of those Europeans are you know clearly complete scumbags in the sense of I mean the Batman character mm. came to came to the Melbourne air from Tasmania, I believe, and just kind of. Grabbed stuff.
1: Uh, and Having spent, uh, 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 made, made his name killing Palawa people in, in Tasmania to clear land, Yeah. and he,
0: he's got he's got places named after him all over
1: Melbourne,
0: mm. um, including in that, that amazing Docklands, yeah, monstrosity. <laughs> um, the um, the plurality of peoplehood in the context in the indigenous context is, I think, extremely challenging. Uh, very challenging politically, Um, and it's a reminder that um, Indigenous peoples, when they're minorities, which in many parts of the world they are, minorities as against settler descendants, uh, in those situations it's not just a matter of one coherent minority whose rights need to be respected. Now, it's it's quite a strange matter that one of the key um, cases that international lawyers refer to in relation to self-determination one of the most useful cases to refer to because of the way uh, self-determination was discussed is a Canadian Supreme Court decision when Quebec was seeking independence from Canada uh, on the basis of its cultural differences from the rest of the provinces of of the Federation of Canada um, and that's it, it's a it's a, a Decision by the Municipal Courts of Canada its not an international law decision, but it's often referred to really for the, the detail of its discussion about um, for what reasons, what criteria might some subpopulation of a federation rightfully seek self-determination? Could the people of Victoria or Tasmania have any, any justification for seeking self-determination? Mm-hmm. You know, and in brackets, if not, why not? But the Canadian case, of course, is about Quebec and the basis of its claim or the claim of its leaders uh, was the French connection, so to mm. speak, the, you know, the Francophile language, culture. So one settler, one settler com- community in, in dispute in terms of governance or de- identity with the majority settler descendants who were mm-hmm. English-speaking Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's ironic that that's the that's the dispute. At the same time, Canada uh, is a, probably one of the most advanced countries from from at least a certain point of view in formal agreements between the government, the overall state government of Canada, and particular First Nations peoples in Canada. So mm-hmm. you know sure. they're at the forefront of that from that point of view. Yeah. Um, unlike Australia or. Now, the mm. New Zealand situation, again, is interestingly different.
1: Yeah, so Canada's an interesting example too where you have um, seemingly this almost kind of, you know, confected or, or overlaid national identity on top of what appear to be disparate sort of populations. Um, but the same is arguably true of Britain and you, you've already alluded to the the breakup or potential breakup of, of the United Kingdom that seems to be a, a, a not inconceivable mm. Outcome of Brexit. Yes. Um, there's, I've just saw the other day. There's polling that suggests there's now a majority for union with um, the Republic in the six counties for the first oh, time ever in Northern not. Ireland. It's, pollers, polling has started to see, okay. um, you know, that even Protestant communities are now saying yes. we'd probably be better off um, in the Republic. Now, whether that's oh, true or not, I don't. Sorry. I don't make any claims, and I don't really want to be firebombed. Um, but you know, it, it's it's kind of interesting there that. Um, that you've got these sort of interesting interplays between these national identities and yet we have this overlaid relatively recent sort of, I don't know, paranational or meta national identity of Britishness that overlays all that. And yet it's fascinating that a large proportion of people um, can see themselves as British people but can't see themselves as European people. So what does that tell us about the boundaries of peoplehood?
0: Mm, mm, look the the Ireland uh, questions are extremely important, and I think it's it's amazingly ironic that the situation at the moment, the situation that seems to be most difficult for the British the current British governmental leadership, um, is the Irish question, so to speak, the issue of uh, what would happen uh, in, in, in terms of a hard border within the within the island of Ireland. Um, between um, part of it remaining in Europe and part not being in Europe. It's it's really interesting that that has become such a critical point for the British leadership, uh, given the, you know, the long centuries of, of uh, English involvement in Ireland. Um, look, I lived in those six counties myself for six years in the 1980s and, mm. you know, understandably it's it's a place that uh, one leaves with um, many impressions of various kinds. Um, if it, it, I think it's quite feasible, I hadn't heard the, st- the statistics you just mentioned, that there may be currently a, a majority within the six A counties, very slim majority. Or a slim one. <laughs> Look, um, the, the people that live in that part of the world um, are um, think of themselves as distinct, certainly distinct from the English. Mm. And the Scottish, they got a lot more in common ethnically, I should say. the the, the Protestant descent, the Protestant community in the north of Ireland, uh, I should say, has a lot in common uh, ethnically um, with with people from Scotland because it was particularly Scottish, mm. uh, loyal loyal Scottish um, communities that were replanted into the north of Ireland because in that in those days, Elizabeth the first time. Uh, it was the very far north of Ireland that was the most resistant to English domination. Kind of, mm. ironically enough, um, it, the issue of Britishness. Um, I, you know, growing up as I did in London initially, um, that is a the way those levels of identity interrelate, uh, and sometimes one occludes another, and sometimes one becomes dominant. It's a really interesting question. As you say, the Europeness question, why is it so difficult for English people, Scottish people, etc., cetera, perhaps to think of themselves as European? I mean, arguably, it should be least difficult in Scotland because of the ancient connection, the old, old alliance so-called between England and France. Um, the Europeanness in that sense must have some footholds um but it's there are centuries of uh inward looking um education and and political governance within and culture within the UK which militates against europeanness as any kind of shared identity it makes mm. it quite difficult other than on the economic terms but i think ireland i think it's highly likely that unification of ireland is going to happen actually, you know, in the foreseeable future rather mm. than in some utopian wow. dreamlike situation. I think it's highly likely.
1: Which would be- On, mm-hmm.
0: on pragmatic grounds, on economic mm. grounds of, you know, where is our future best? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's it's, it's quite popular. That
1: po- course has been in possible. the North for a long time, though. I remember um, doing a walking tour on the walls of Derry and our, in 2000, this was. So two years after the Good Friday Agreement, and- our tour guide, um, somebody, there was an Australian on the tour who said to him, it wasn't me, who said to him, um, you know, I can't believe how bad it still is up here. And he said, no, look, you, if you told me three or four years ago that I'd be taking tourists along the city walls here, I would have laughed in your face. Yes, yes. Um, and somebody said, do you think it will keep getting better? And he said, it has to because we've had 30 years of depression and we can't go on like this. And he pointed to where a new shopping centre was being built. And he said, and that's the stuff that will do it. Mm. Um, but then he pointed to where a new peace wall was being built on at on one of the interface communities. So it was kind of it, it was kind of startling in that sense that, that you, know, and again, it, it's one of these places where the idea of of how does personhood map onto things like geography that, you know it, it if you were an outsider coming at that, you'd say, well, why don't they just have a vote? Uh, and that should settle it. But of course, the nationalist position has always been that it's the community of the island of Ireland that should determine the status of the six counties, whereas it's always been the unionist position that it's it's the people of Northern Ireland that should determine the status of Northern Ireland. Both, you know, <laughs> have their own kind of internal logic yeah, to yeah, them. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. And, again, it, it largely comes down to where you think um, these sort of – it seems to take nations or, or per, peoples to be this sort of natural kind that we can pick out. And unproblematically map onto territories, and that just doesn't seem to hold.
0: absolutely. it's it's hugely problematic. Um, again, one comes back to the indigenous matter of connection to land. Mm-hmm. And for me, as an international law scholar, if, if that's what I am, um I have to say that's from that point of view, it's a that's a hugely difficult concept to assimilate into any kind of a global uh, cosmopolitan attitude towards how, you know, how human population should share the world between mm. them. Um, it's, of course, it's not up to me to, to undermine or you know, critique anyone, any personal community for their personal sh- and sh- more to the point, shared attachment to particular land, just because I don't, have that connection with, you know, the place I was born in London, I like it, sort of like it. <laughs> but, you know, the whole idea of having a direct emotional spiritual connection with it, it would be completely fake of me to claim that I have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, even I would say I, I feel a connection with London that's much more than any connection with England, for example. Mm-hmm. I don't feel English particularly, although I've got no option but to be that. And I'm I'm very pleased to have two passports. I have to say, <laughs> while I do, while I'm allowed to have two passports, so um, c- territorial connection of land to populations, um, it raises huge difficulties. Um, and as I say, my my current discipline of international law, um, you know, grapples with it and tries to manage it and tries to minimise. The conflicts that arise because of that, but you know, fails grotesquely in all sorts of situations, like the Rohingya situation mm. currently, for example, is a huge failure of, of many international, forms of governance and for local and international forms of governance. Um that, You know, the, the massive uh, refugee issues around the Mediterranean and Sub-Saharan Africa and so on again huge. Really huge failures of the international system from that point of view. Um, w- the notion of peoplehood, I think, um, doesn't solve anything, mm. it doesn't clarify anything. Um, it appears to be um, bringing clarity to situations and phenomena that are actually extremely challenging and um, pulling in all sorts of different directions. Mm.
1: And, of course, it can it can also be contested too. I mean, one of the things that occurs in a lot of discourse around Israel-Palestine is, you know, the um, Palestinians define themselves as a people. Some people deny the pe- the peoplehood of the Palestinians and insist they're really Jordanian or whatever, which, you know, um, I'm not asserting that, by the way. Um, so it seems like, like as soon as we introduce the idea of peoples, there are going to be threshold cases where people are just going to deny the existence of peoples as well. Uh,
0: yes, there are. I mean, the, with the Palestine issue... Um, One thing it makes possible to talk about peoplehood even when it may not yet be possible to talk about statehood or where it's, you know, when it's still even more debatable from the international law perspective, Um, it's possible to talk about the rights of populations um, in ways which are, I think, are helpful uh, so in the, the advisory opinion that the International Court of Justice gave in around 2004 on the security wall, the so-called security wall in the occupied Palestinian territories, um, uh, the, the clear, well, vast majority of the court placed a lot of emphasis on human rights needs of the Palestinian people, including a self-determination right, which they said was undermined or or was was, um, was prevented by a wall preventing their free movement across territory to which they had some kind of rightful access as a people, mm-hmm. irrespective or pr- prior to um, a statehood recognition as such. So, if one thinks of that decision by the court, as I certainly do, as a as a as a progressive matter, um, then there are options, there are there there's um possibilities within the peoplehood discourse which enable um political movement to be nudged ahead mm-hmm. uh, which are not are not necessarily yet available from the more Uh, formalistic um, state and territory-based discourse as Mm -hmm. in, I guess, as in most of the UN
1: Charter. Right. And and for someone like the Kurds, for instance, you've then got a similar kind of dynamic.
0: The Kurds, uh, because the Kurds uh, as self-identified are communities that spread across at least three national borders, as I understand it. So Mm -hmm. I think Turkey, Iraq and Another state in the same region, mm-hmm. and I forget exactly, I apologize for forgetting the third state. Um, there is a, I understand, a, a, to some extent, a shared sense of identity of Kurdish people across those boundaries, although at the same time, as I also understand it from a distance, um, there are to some extent different identities of the Turkish Kurds, the Iranian Kurds, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good example of um, what a, would appear to be on any normal criteria of cohesion, identi- identified cohesion of a, of a community of population, the Kurds would seem to be at least as legitimate mm-hmm. as any other group, you know, group of, of populations one might name. Um, th- their right to, to a state is only going to be recognised um and fulfilled if there's some significant movement by the the sovereigns of those individual states of which they are a part. Mm-hmm. Um which and, and the decisions made there are geopolitical decisions, of course, yeah. around what you know, the way Iraq may be subdivided or something of mm-hmm. that kind.
1: Is there a, a threshold point at which um peoples have a certain kind of either size or manifest sort of distinctiveness that allows some kind of separatist or or sovereignty movements to succeed where others don't. Like I'm thinking, you know, why is it that, you know, like the Basques have always had their particular claim. The the Catalonians came pretty close to um, successfully asserting an independence claim. Um, The Corsicans never have. And I've wondered is that just because the Corsicans are too French in a way, to, to assert peoplehood separately or is it just that there just aren't enough of them or what is it about, what is it that makes some of these movements achieve a kind of critical mass but not others?
0: Yeah. I mean it, that, that appears to be an empirical question about, um, you know, the facts are that historically certain groupings, certain populations have been successful or, as you say, have been nearly successful and, and others haven't. Mm-hmm. Uh, one could, you know, try to look for patterns in those, in those observations, so to speak, I don't think there's any, um, systematic or principled underlying factors or parameters to which one could point and say, you know, one could have predicted that the Corsicans would never get anywhere because X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. It does appear to be a, you know, a completely empirical matter in the sense of, of political realities uh, particular elites, uh, particular ways that overall uh, states have recognised relative autonomy for some area, like mm-hmm. the Chechnya being recognised by the, the the various Russian Federation um, regimes as having some level of autonomy, mm-hmm. and again Catalonia the same, um, Basque again the the question of relative autonomy within an overall sovereign state. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's whether it's a good idea for a population that wants to be self-determining uh, whatever it means to say the population wants it whether it's a good idea to accept relative autonomy within the overall structure or whether it's better to hold out for full independence mm-hmm. that's clearly one of those political strategy questions which would you know you can imagine it occupying smoke-filled rooms About you know, do we work from the inside? Um, You know, what is the right strategy for a people, Mm. whatever that is, if they really, really want their own independent state? Should they go and find an island somewhere that doesn't have any any humans on it, Mm. and just say, "Look, this is now where we we are based. This is now us."
1: So this. Neatly brings us back then, just to finish up. You've made a fairly bold call on um, the probability of Irish reunification. <laughs> Do you think Scotland's going to go?
0: I think it's highly likely that Scotland will manage to get some relationship with the European community, which is distinctly different from what appears to be emerging in in England and Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the uh, the... Elites in Scotland um, are of the view that the Scotland economy is so closely tied with the London English-British economy that it probably is not a good idea to be uh, significantly separated from England in that economic sense. Um, I was actually in Scotland... Uh, when the results of the referendum were announced, so that's about four years ago now, I guess. Mm. Uh, so it was very interesting to to get the sense of what you know friends and and, and acquaintances commented on that. Um, most of the arguments that one heard were actually economics arguments. So of course there was a lot of you know waving of tartan around and things. A mm. lot of romantic. Uh, ideology and so on around, but most people on both sides of the argument were using economic arguments about what's it going to be like long-term. So I think Scotland would try to to reach some kind of um, closer relationship with Europe, which would not result in its needing to have full independence from the UK.
1: That's interesting. But again,
0: anything can happen.
1: Or possibly the best outcome then economically for everyone would be um, Scotland uh, having um, frictionless trade with a re-entrant England <laughs> after um, after separation and then
0: that, yes yeah. that, interesting who knows yeah but yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's
1: it's funny you said about the referendum too I, I was in Dublin when the Brexit result was announced. Um, and everyone around me was absolutely shell shocked. But everyone around me was a British academic, so they weren't. I don't know to what extent they were representative, but it was it was fascinating to to watch that. Yeah, yeah. It, interesting times, yes. As yes. as the old Chinese curse well, goes.
0: <laughs> I mean, one of the things that's happening in London at the moment, of course, with the Supreme Court hearing this these questions about uh, Boris Johnson's uh, dealings with Her Majesty. Uh, it's raising questions about the British Constitution, which have never been raised, mm. um, and they you know, they will be defined. Or some aspects of the relationship between the Prime Minister, the head of state, the Parliament, um, those are going to be defined for the first time by you know that bench of you know what used to be called the House of Lords, um, and that's going to be extremely interesting for anyone with any you know connections with that part of the world. And you know, globally, because of geopolitical um, implications, I guess uh, what comes out of that is going to be quite important. I think, and could, you know, could have some quite far-reaching effects for the the, the British mm-hmm. constitution.
1: Yeah, yeah. All right, John Morse. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for talking to us.
0: Thanks, Pat. Enjoyed it.
1: Deconstruction is produced by Phi Philosophy and the History of Ideas Research Team at Deakin
0: University, Australia. For more information, visit
1: blogs.deakin.edu.au slash philosophy.